just want to say thanks for having me the last four weeks. I've enjoyed it. I've especially enjoyed your comments and questions. Those of you, those of you who've spoken to me afterwards, that's better, isn't it? Oh, is that too loud? Uh, you've helped me to uh, understand in uh, the book of Exodus much better than I used to as well. So thank you for your contributions and your interaction. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for all the privileges that you want to give us in the Lord Jesus. We thank you especially this today that you have spoken to us, that we might know what you are like. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and minds today, that we would be shaped and changed and moulded by you, that you would make us useful in your service. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know from the announcements here that you're all X-Files fans, but hands up if you've seen the movie Pretty Woman. It's very tragic, very sad to do that. I thought you'd have better things to do with your lives. But for the few of you there who haven't seen it, let me explain to you what it's about. I've not seen it, I've only seen the trailers, but it's the kind of movie where you see 30 seconds of the trailers and you know what kind of movie it is. It's really, I think, in, uh, in modern form, a, a fairy tale. A classic rags-to-riches story, dressed up in contemporary clothes. The girl has nothing, a prostitute with a miserable life, until this guy, a dashing, handsome millionaire, falls in love with her and pulls her out of her world into a completely different one. Picks her up off the street and lavishes on her everything, clothes, money, a luxurious apartment, and eventually asks her to marry him. That's what my wife said it was about anyway. <laughs> it's a great rags to riches story, isn't it? From nothing to everything. We're going to say, if you are a Christian here today, that story is nothing compared to what God has done for you and I. We had nothing. Well, in fact, worse than nothing. You were dead in sin, facing an eternity of judgment. And then God chose to change everything. He sent his son to die in our place that we might be forgiven. He has adopted us into his family that we might call him father. He's preparing a place for you in heaven that you can't even begin to imagine. There is nothing that is his that he does not want to lavish on you. And we've been able to appreciate that the last few weeks, what God has done for us this side of Jesus. In the picture we've seen of that, in God's dealing with his Old Testament people, the people of Israel. It's been their experience too. From all the nations, God chose them to be his treasured possession. And he's taking them to be with him in the promised land. He has given them his name, he's given them his law. Uh, we saw last week with thunder and lightning at Mount Sinai. To them and them alone he has bared his heart and entered that, into that relationship. From nothing to having everything. And you know, I reckon that's where the book of Exodus should actually end. We shouldn't be here for a fourth week, I don't think. On this great high note, this rags to riches, slavery to Sinai story. As they gathered together as the people who belonged to God. The curtain should go down on one of those and they lived happily ever after kind of stories. But it doesn't. We see in our passage we've just read in Exodus 32, 
It is a story with a tragic twist at the end. But a part of the story, a part of the Old Testament picture that I think is vital for us to understand, to appreciate the way God deals with you and I, this side of Jesus. Got your Bibles open? Exodus 32. With Moses uh, still up on the mountain, he's receiving a, a printout, a, a hard copy of the Ten Commandments that he's already spoken to the people of Israel. They are down the bottom, already in the very act of breaking at least one of them. Remember how God had saved them, if you were here uh, last week, he saved them at the Red Sea, and straight away they began to, to grumble, to complain and disobey. Well, here again, God has just opened his heart and given them his law. They have trembled at the foot of the mountain as he has spoken. And now with almost his voice still ringing in the air, they turn around and trample in the dirt, the very thing that he has just told them that he loves. And it's important, I think, to understand here exactly what Israel do wrong. I don't think it's that they worship a different God. Uh, the NIV, if you look in verse 4, that's the English translation I've got here and was read for us. The NIV confuses the issue, I think, in verse 4 by saying, these are your gods. It would be much better translated, here is your God. And if you've got a different translation, it probably says that. But even if you put that aside, in, in verse 5, uh, or verse, no, still in verse 4, it's very clear, the God they worship here in verse 4 is the God who brought them up out of Egypt. And in verse 5, it's very clear, they use God's special name, Yahweh the Lord, for worshipping this calf. Uh, they are wanting to worship the God who has rescued them, but in the visible form of a cow. So, if that's all that's happening, well, what's the fuss about that? Well, the problem is they want to serve the right God, not in the way he is said to. He said, don't make images. I hate idols. Second commandment. I take it pictures or statues will always limit our understanding, our appreciation of God, his greatness, his holiness. They can never do justice to him, but, but caricature it, cheapen God. The irony here, they, they want to please him, it seems. They, they want to worship him. But by doing the very thing that he hates... The first time I took out uh, the girl who eventually became my wife, I took Cathy to the best takeaway pizza shop in Manly, is where we lived. Beautiful laminated tables, you know, sort of those airline tourist posters of Italy, sort of blue tacked on the wall. It was obvious I wanted to make a big impression. <laughs> and to do that, I ordered the best pizza on the menu and uh, the best pizza there. Do you know what anchovies are? <laughs> You know, those, they're sort of those you know, beautiful, salty little fish things that bursting with flavour. No pizza is complete without them. Well, Cathy took first bite, and instead of the sort of grunting noises of appreciation I was expecting, <laughs> she started making these coughing, hacking noises and threw the pizza down the table and looked at me, looked at me as though I'd been trying to poison her. <laughs> now, where was my mistake? Well, what did I do wrong? I thought I was actually doing something that she would like. I thought I was being a bit romantic, really, for, for me anyway. But I was trying to please her by giving her something she hated. 
And I learned something very important that night. If I want to love Kathy, when I order pizza, no anchovies. Do you get the idea here? It's the same in our relationship with God. He has revealed himself to us. He tells us the things he likes and he doesn't, so we don't have to guess how to please him. In my defence, I, I didn't know that first night that Kathy can't stand anchovies, but it would be a different thing, wouldn't it, if I kept ordering anchovies after I knew. But you see, that's exactly what Israel do here, what we do when we sin. They try and please God by giving him the very thing he has already spoken and made it clear he cannot stomach. You see, there are some important ideas here, I think, that this passage teaches us that good intentions aren't good enough. It's a common idea, I think, in, in, in Australia that, that uh, all world religions, Australians believe it, lots of people on campus will believe it, that we're all worshipping the same God. We just each happen to do it in our own particular way. It's different strokes for different folks. And if you want to worship the divine being your way, that's great. As long as you do that sincerely, that's all that counts. Is that the impression you get here with the golden calf? No. It's not up to us to decide what form that will take to do what feels right for us. You see... What do you reckon worship is? I don't know if you've ever heard people say something like, we had a great time of worship at my church last Sunday. Now what do they mean by that? My hunch is normally what they mean is they're, they're talking about how much they enjoyed it. They're probably talking about the music. It was a style of music they, partic they particularly like. It was perhaps done in a way that was particularly done well. And it moved them. They had a good feeling about being there. But is that how God rates whether our worship is good or not? Look at the passage. As they gather around the golden calf, their singing sounds great. I mean, Moses can hear it all the way up on the mountain. So much enthusiasm. I reckon they feel good about themselves. They feel good about God. I've got no, no doubt. They're sincere about what they're doing. It's coming from the heart. But God hates it, we're told. Their worship is detestable and his anger burns against them. Now let me say I'm the last person who wants church to be unenjoyable, to not move us. I think excellence in our music is a good thing. But we need to really think through what's true worship? Well it's doing what God says. Not just in church but in all of our lives. Living our lives the way he calls us to. The way he says is the life that will please him. Recently I was talking to someone and they said, look, the church I go to, the Bible isn't taught well. Some of the things that are taught and emphasised, I know they're not what the Bible says. And they said the people at their church aren't very nice to them at all either. That's actually quite, been quite ungodly in their relationships. But for all those things, they are very enthusiastic about our church. It is still worth going because the worship is great. But you see, as you, as you think about church where you go, I don't know what it's like, but real worship might be putting up with the kind of music you don't personally like or enjoy in love for those at church who might find it more helpful to love and serve and put yourself out for them the way Jesus has loved and served and put himself out 
for you. Not about what you will enjoy. And not just about Sundays, but all the weeks. All the week in the context we find ourselves. At uni, at home, how you bear witness for Christ here on the campus. Worship is hearing God's word and doing it. In the end, what matters is not how we feel, but how God feels about it. And I think you see that most powerfully in this chapter, in the way God responds to the golden calf incident. If you look from chapter 32, verse 9, God is so grieved. God is so stung. Uh, Sin offends God. In verse 9, he's going to wipe them out completely, his own people. He says, I've seen these people. They are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone that my anger may burn against them, that I may destroy them. Then I will make you, start again with just Moses, I will make you into a great nation. That ought to rattle us. It ought to shake us. That he would say to us, stand aside, I will zot them with charcoal. They have been my people, but I cannot stand the what they are doing. Now can I say, in the conversation between God and Moses, if you look at what follows, at about verse 30, as Moses pleads with God and God has mercy and, and holds back from destroying them, the thing that should impress us, I think, is not the bargaining skills of Moses, his negotiating abilities, that he works God around from doing something that would be rash and, and petulant. Lots of books that talk about this passage, lots of books that talk about prayer, speak about this passage in that way. That uh, Moses here you know, is a great example for us of how to badger God long enough to get what we want from him. His offer of sacrifice is impressive. He offers himself, he says, destroy me in their place. It's a wonderful little Old Testament picture of what the Lord Jesus will actually come and do in your place and mine. But what should really impress us here is God's amazing patient love with people who don't deserve it. He has every right to blot them out over and over again. Please don't miss the wonder of it here. That God, with, with wounded heart, rebuffed and rejected, in the midst of his rightful anger, he will still move with love and mercy towards his people. But even saying that about God's character and what's God, what God is like, it's important to see here in, in uh, Exodus 32 that some things have changed. In verse 19, as Moses comes down the mountain, sees the calf and throws down the stone tablets and they shatter into pieces, a relationship has been broken. And although God will still go with them to the land and they will still be his people, some things will not be the same again. Something dies here with the golden calf that will never be put right again with the people of Israel. There must now be a distance between God and his people. In fact, in, uh, in the end of Exodus 32, through to Exodus 34, in a series of subtle changes, it highlights for us there is now a distance in the relationship between God and his people. If you look in chapter 32, verse 26, it was going to be that every family in Israel would be able to go into the tabernacle, into the tent that later becomes the temple, to stand in God's presence and approach him, to offer sacrifices to God. Every family represented by their firstborn son 
would be the priest for their family. But no longer. Now only one tribe of the twelve, the Levites, the ones who stood with Moses when Israel worshipped the golden calf, only their first sons will pass through the curtain into the holy place and represent the whole nation. The rest of Israel have lost that privilege forever and must now stand at a distance and watch. In fact, it seems that uh, instead of all the people, Moses alone, if you look at chapter 33 from about verse 7, Moses alone could stand in the, in the very presence of God. Up until now, there's been a tent that stood in the midst of the camp, the tent of meeting. God met there with his people. But now in verse 7, the tent suddenly appears on the outside of the camp. In a sense, not much has changed. The tent is still there. But in a subtle way, everything changes. The tent was now a reminder of something different. It used to tell them and remind them that God dwells with you in your midst. But now on the edge of the camp, it reminds them, well, God cannot really dwell with you. God must stay apart from you. You are sinful and he is holy. You might want to look at Exodus chapter 24 later. The references, I think, are on your outline. Although they stood at a distance, the people could see God's glory up on the mountain, the fire and the lightning. And in 24, 10, verse 10, the elders came even closer. All the elders, the leaders of Israel, saw God face to face. Brilliant and dazzling. Like something it says, like sapphire under his feet. And they ate and drank with him. But after the golden calf, God's glory becomes something to be feared. Not a wonder to approach that they might fellowship with him. As sinful people in fear, they must stand apart. When I was a kid growing up, we didn't have skin cancer. My mum was always telling us that it was good to go out in the sun. You know, it was a, you know, the healthy thing for you. Yeah. We grew up thinking that the sun was a wonderful thing. When the sun was out, well, you went out and played. And uh, even now, I think I get depressed on uh, cloudy days when the sun's out. I, I just want to go outside and enjoy it. But in one generation, my kids have been so indoctrinated with this skin cancer business. The sun is something they're almost afraid of. You know, between 11 and 3, we huddle inside and close the blinds in case one of those rays of deadly radiation comes in and, and gets us and we huddle in the gloom in fear. I exaggerate slightly. <laughs> but in one generation, our, our attitude to the sun has changed completely. I believe in skin cancer. You know, keep your hats on. But our attitude has changed. It has gone from being something we think of as a blessing to a curse, from happiness to fear. Something that you want to run out in and bask in. To something to hide away from. That is the change in attitude here for the people of God with God and his glory. For Israel, the glory of a holy God is something that now fills them with terror to be hidden from. In fact, so much so. If you turn over to chapter 34, verse 29. 34, verse 29. The face of Moses when he's gone into the tent, it shines, it glows for some time after being in God's presence. But Israel can't even bear the faint reflection of God's glory that they see in the face of Moses. He must cover himself. Imagine being so frightened of the sun, you couldn't bear to look at someone who had sunburnt their face, they had to cover it up. 
The glory of God has become such a fearful thing. Those pictures of distance, that, that distancing between God and his people should remind us how God still feels, always feels, about sin. You see, he doesn't just shrug his shoulders and say it doesn't matter like you and I do. Our thinking about sin in the world and our thinking about sin in our lives, I think it really has to change. As Christians, well, I think we can be so indifferent to sin. We hear so much about God's forgiveness and grace. I think sometimes it breeds in us an unhelpful complacency. What are the sins in your life that you shrug your shoulders at? You look at the evil in the world and you get angry about that, but where are the areas in your life where there's disobedience that you think, oh, it doesn't really matter? Even in the life of his saved people, sin grieves God. And if we want to know him and love him, then it has to start grieving us too. When was the last time you wept over sin in your life? Your inability in an area of your life to lead a life that honours God and pleases Him. Let's not lose that aspect of what God is like. I saw a documentary recently about a woman whose immune system failed. It was in the midst of an ordinary life. It came unexpectedly. She was going to work. She had two little kids. And now even a cold had become a deadly threat. Her, her body lacked the ability to fight any disease that got into her bloodstream. And so she now had to live in complete isolation, in, in a bubble, no contact even with her family. Her husband and kids would visit her and they'd have to mouth the words, I love you, through the glass. They would hold hands up against the glass before they would leave after the visit. The documentary actually traced the family and their reaction, their response to this. They interviewed the husband. He said, I never realised how much to actually touch the person you love, to, to hug them, to, to sit with them was so important. And, and the kids were heartbreaking. From being a mum who, who kissed them and tucked them in at night, the way she had held her hand against their cheek when they had woken with a nightmare and were frightened. Now a distant figure who waved goodbye through the glass wall. That tragedy is what really happens for Israel because of sin. For God and his people to live together, there must be that separation. And everything, I think, in the story tells us it shouldn't be like this. In fact, right through the Old Testament, the tent of meeting, later the temple, there will always be the curtain that separates a holy God from a sinful people. The reminder to every generation that this is what it is like. In a very real way, the golden calf here is like the fall in Genesis 3 all over again. God's plan, God's dream to live with his people and dwell with them has been absolutely shattered. And yet all through the Old Testament as they live with this, the prophets spoke of a future where it might be different. They looked forward to something called a new covenant, where God would deal with this separation, with sin once and for all, 
when God would actually change his people inwardly to give them hearts that obey and long to live his way, that he might dwell with them and it might not be ruined again and again by the golden calf kind of problem happening over and over again. So when Jesus came and spoke about a new covenant in his blood, can you see why he got people's attention? That Jesus, by his death in our place, would deal with the problem of sin that we might be able to come back into relationship with God. That's why as he hung on the cross and as he died there and breathed his last, the symbol in the temple, the curtain of that great barrier between God and people was torn in two and done away with once and for all. In the last chapter of the Bible, the book of Revelation tells us there will be no temple in heaven. Now why? Why would there be no temple? Jesus has done away with the very need for one in his death. We will be there with him face to face. But even now for us as God's people, if you turn with me to the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it'll be worth turning, worth clicking. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 from verse 7. Even now for us, as the people who belong to Jesus, in 2 Corinthians 3, in verse 16, Paul tells us that when anyone turns to Christ, he says, chapter 3 verse 16, we behold the wonder of God's glory. We stand in his presence. When anyone turns to Christ... But actually we behold the wonder of God and his glory in a far and a way far surpassing anything Moses ever saw with his sunburnt face. We behold his glory in all its fullness, in his overwhelming love, in the giving of his son. Last year our family went to Janolan Caves and my kids brought with them these, uh, in their bags, these $2 torches they'd bought from Woolies. They're useless little toys and we told them they weren't allowed to bring them but they snuck them to their bags and brought them anyway. When we got into the caves they actually brought them out from their pockets in great triumph. But it was amazing to actually see when, when there wasn't any light in the caves and they're absolutely dark, a $2 Woolies torch will actually illuminate huge caverns. It seems like a blazing light. It was all you needed to actually navigate all the way through the caves. Back on the surface, when you emerged into the sunlight, it was easy to forget that the torch was even on. That little beam was impossible to see in the light, completely surpassed by the sun. You could point it into your shadow in the middle of the day and it wouldn't even make a spot. The overwhelming glory, Paul tells us, the overwhelming glory that Moses saw in the presence of God and was reflected in his sunburnt face. Paul tells us, is nothing, if you are a Christian here today, nothing compared to the glory of God we see in his son and his death on the cross to make us right with God. And not a glory now to be feared, to be hid from, to run away from, but to rejoice in and run to and bask him. Instead of distance, when you turn to Christ, God's presence, God's spirit comes to dwell within you. And just as Moses was visibly changed by the glory of God that shone on him and glowed afterwards for some time, 
We are changed by the glory of God that we see in Christ, but in a much more profound way. That glory that shines on us, look in verse 18, chapter 3, verse 18. That glory that shines on us, we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Changed to be like the Lord Jesus himself. Changed to love and serve God, to worship him with all we are. We began looking at the book of Exodus four weeks ago with that great dream, that great set of promises that God made to Abraham that he would one day live with his people, that he would recapture all that was lost in the Garden of Eden. Is a promise that finds its great fulfilment in the Lord Jesus, in the promise that he invites us to be part of in heaven forever. But even now he is the God who is not distant from us but with us. We have his spirit. He has spoken to us that we might know the things that please him, that we might hate sin and put it to death in our lives, and that in knowing Christ, we might reflect his glory to a world that still lives in darkness.